Morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to follow along. Slip your hand up and our ushers will get one to you like a bag of peanuts on an airplane that never runs out. So from our earliest memories, at least mine, I'm aware of the difference between right and wrong. Uh, Even if you have a bad memory, we can see in our kids and grandkids that by the time that they're barely sentient, they are also aware of right and wrong. We watch young kids get frustrated with each other, and someone reaches out to punch or slap the other person, and then immediately they look for a parent to see who has caught them in their transgression, right? I remember being a little kid going to the farmer's market with my mom, and as she shopped for groceries, I found myself on a specific aisle enamored with what I found on that aisle. You see, there was wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling tubs with clear plexiglass lids filled with various and sundry nuts and chocolates of all kinds. And each of these tubs had a shovel attached to it, (laughs) which I only assume meant that you could fill your pockets with as much booty as you could carry. But I knew I didn't have the resources needed for what I wanted. And I was at a moral crossroads at six or seven years old and decided between doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And that particular day, I chose the wrong thing and lifting the clear plexiglass lid, and I hoisted, thankfully not a shovel full, but a single solitary corn nut from its bin into my mouth. And wrestling with those clear cases of right and wrong doesn't necessarily get easier as you and I get older, but maybe we do have the advantage of deciding more quickly as we get older, determining what is right and what is wrong. And with maturity in life and with maturity in faith, you and I also seem to get this new category of right and wrong that we were forced to start dealing with. This new category doesn't deal with wrong anymore. It only assumes with what's right. Wrong is off the list. See, maybe in this category, you and I have decided that we're going to do the right thing because of Jesus. And in this new category, if you're a follower of Christ, you're challenged to ask yourself, okay, so I've made the right decision, I've done the right thing, or I want to make a wise choice, but here's the new category, am I making the right decision for the right reason? Are you doing this good deed for a good reason? Are you doing this good deed for a God-honoring reason, or are you doing this good thing for a reason which only serves you? And even as little kids, our little dark hearts can start to calculate how to do a good thing or a nice thing, but beneath the surface, we're not doing it for a good reason. Maybe we're doing it because we desire the attention of somebody else. We're desiring a piece of chocolate in return or we're desiring the praise of other people. Uh, Pastor Derek told me about a funny article this week that A.A. Milne, the writer of the Winnie the Pooh stories, had written. Uh, He wrote this little article. uh, It's called A Hint for Next Christmas, if you want to look it up later. And he writes of this man named William who went to a big Christmas party, and no one had told him that it was a gift-giving exchange party. 
So he showed up horrified. He had no gifts. And so to think through his problem, he went to the dining room while everyone else was in the living room. And in the dining room, upon each person's place, were piled gifts. And uh, the author Milne writes this, the uh, first place he came to, the top parcel said, to John and Mary from Charles. So William took out his fountain pen and added a couple of words to the inscription. It then read, to John and Mary from Charles and William. <laughs> he then moved on to the next place, which, and the gift read, to Angela from Father, to which William added, and William. He reached the place where the hostess sat and he hesitated because the first present there was labeled darling mother from her loving children. Milne writes, it didn't seem that and William was quite suitable on this one. So he moved to the next and 20 seconds later, the gift read to darling mother from John and Mary and William. That's only funny because we know how bad it is. <laughs> and as the sermon today kind of gets at, you and I have to recognize the reality that there are actually good works that don't. Jesus makes it clear to us in this passage we're going to look at in the Sermon on the Mount today that there are good works that you and I can do which just simply don't work. They don't work in the sense that, yeah, they're good, okay, but what, where they don't work is that they fall short of God's desire that you and I give and do out of purity of heart with God's glory and the blessing of others as our chief goal. And the Bible makes it very clear that the standard required for people who follow God as their king is to prioritize the kingdom of God over everything. To prioritize the kingdom of God over earthly reward and to prioritize the kingdom of God over the accolades and applause of men. Scripture is very clear. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added for you. Deuteronomy 6, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know him and he will make your path straight. 1 Thessalonians 2, instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Colossians 3 reads, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Scripture is clear. Followers of Christ will prioritize the king and the kingdom over the praises of men. And one of the big warnings within this teaching today is specifically in regards to the notion of hypocrisy. And I don't have, that's not a hard sell in a Christian church, right? Nobody, nobody here wants to be a hypocrite. Nobody likes a hypocrite. Nobody's eager to invite one to your Christmas dinner. Yet, if we're honest, each of us is in danger of being a hypocrite every day. 
Now, we get this word hypocrite from the ancient Greek world. And hypocrites originally were those actors in Greek plays who would put on different masks in order to play different roles. And you'd have the same actor who would simply switch a mask and become a different character within the play. And this is what you and I have a danger of doing, Jesus would communicate, that our good works, while they're done, yes, maybe they're done with a mask of goodness, but really sometimes there's something else going on underneath. If we're fair, sometimes we know that we're hypocrites, but we don't care because we want what we want. Other times, Sadly, we don't even know that we're hypocrites. We're self-deluded, and we think we're really doing good. And truly, we, we might not be on a stage with lights, but sometimes we can perform those same actions of putting on a mask, pretending we're something that we're not, doing a good work, and under the surface, really, we're, we're after something other than God's praise. And if we do that, Jesus says, we rob ourselves of the good that's truly within that good work. Now, you and I, if you follow Christ, we do want to desire to do good. We want to seek God with our lives. We want to make good choices. And that is a process of learning over a lifetime. And it can take years for you and I to begin to realize the places in our lives that we thought were good but really need God's work, (laughs) that really need the Holy Spirit. Our whole lives, we thought we were A-OK until the Holy Spirit goes, hmm, let's talk about this. Have a seat. (laughs) Now, for those of you who do follow Christ, and I'm not talking to those of you who were born in a church, raised in a Christian nursery, and raised in a homeschool and all these kinds of things. I'm talking about you who lived an actual life apart from God, and Jesus grabbed you and sent you in a new way. I want to talk to you guys for a second. You remember what it was like shortly after you began this new journey of following Jesus? Where the Holy Spirit almost constantly would be grabbing you and kind of saying, recalculating. I think of the word recalculating because I used to have, when when GPSs first got really small in cars and it was affordable and I bought one, and every time I would deviate from the the route that it had prescribed, the, the little polite British lady would say to me, recalculating. And I'm trying to make a U-turn, and she would say again, recalculating. She's staying very calm, but I'm getting more angry. She's telling me over and over again that I'm going the wrong way. And as new believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit does similarly, and that he's trying to help train us to go the right way. And as we go through our life and make our choices with questionable motives, the Holy Spirit says, recalculating. Maybe uh, as we begin responding to somebody who's given hurtful words to us and we're calculating how to respond appropriately vicious to not only get even but to do better like Ty mentioned last week and the Holy Spirit says have a seat recalculating love your enemies or maybe as you're shopping through the nut aisle at farmer's market and you realize that you have no money and you can't pay for it The Holy Spirit says, recalculating, you have all you need in Christ. Or maybe you're even thinking about doing a good work in Jesus' name, and we start to think just how impressive and godly we'll appear to those who see us do it. 
And that notion begins to swell our hearts larger than our hearts would swell just for the idea of honoring Christ. And the Holy Spirit says, recalculating, let your giving be in secret so that your reward can be by the Father and it can be an eternal reward. Now in this series, Elephant in the Room, we must address the elephant that stands in the room today. And our elephant is very polite. It's very clean. It's a very helpful elephant. This elephant is doing good work. So who could speak poorly of an elephant being so nice? But the elephant in our room today is the elephant of good works done with poor motives. And maybe the cynics among us would say, well, who, Eric, settle down. At least good things are being done. Who are you to question motives? Let it go. But Jesus wants more than the bare minimum. Jesus wants more than just surface level obedience. He wants more than just check the box good works. And so Jesus is not afraid to call out this very polite elephant because he desires that his disciples would seek his kingdom first, even over the accolades of this world. And so he calls those who follow him to do it with complete trust in not only his way of doing things, but also to trust in his particular reward system. Now, his reward system is very different than this world because this world, our own hearts, the enemy will convince us that the rewards that this world offers are actually way good, way better than what the Lord offers. But Jesus knows the truth and he desires that his followers would not only do good works, would not only give, but that they would do so with a purity of heart so that they can receive an eternal reward instead of a temporal earthly reward. So let's read from Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor... Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I hope it's clear here. There, yeah, there is a difference between right and wrong, but there is also a wrong way to do good things. There is a wrong way to do good things. And if you follow Jesus, Jesus would instruct you and I to even do your godly acts in a way beneath the surface that is godly. To do God-honoring behaviors with godly motivations and God-honoring intentions so that they aren't wasted. So that, they, so that the eternal value of your good works isn't tarnished and left like an old box of trophies, which I brought here today. Strangely enough, my mom and dad have been coming over to our house weekly for a long time, but a couple months ago, every time they show up, they show up with more things from my childhood that they either don't want or are either sending me some strange message. I haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet, but I do have a pile of trophies that I'm apparently able to use for a sermon illustration. Um, here is one trophy that's been sitting in my parents, I don't know where, since 1993. 
Foothill High School Varsity Basketball Coaches Award, 1993 and 94. Wow, I bet this hung so high and proud in my room. I don't even know what a coach's award is. Is a coach's award what you give the kid who can't win anything else? <laughs> is the coach's award what happens when the coaches sit around and go, well, who was the best? Who shot the most, blocked the most? Hey, well, Eric didn't get one. What can we give him? Um, coach's award? Great, great idea, Bob. Okay, but I've got that. What value is this to me today? This is a paperweight, and it is going in the trash after the service. <laughs> Our trophies meant so much to us when we won them, right? But 20, 40, 60 years later, our trophies are worthless. And Jesus says, our good works, if done with unpure motives, are that valuable. But when we do our good works to the glory of God the Father, our works can be eternal. So as we look at this passage, I want to remind us that Jesus is addressing one of the most common examples of good honest, pure Jewish religion. Because his audience that he's talking to here is mostly Jewish. People who from birth were Jewish, they've been raised in the Jewish faith, and Jesus had begun declaring to this people group that he was one of, that he was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, that he was the one way to God, that no longer just being Jewish was good enough, not that it ever was, that he had come to bring a truer and better religion and that he was the one way to God, the one way to get access with the Father and that through him and him alone could people be made right with God. That people had to find new life in him. And so it's kind of all amidst these declarations that Jesus begins to take the most common and at times the most mundane parts of life and he begins to till them over to help these people in the crowd and those considering and thinking about following him to realize and appreciate just what's involved in a life of serving him. And in this passage, in the next few we'll get to in a couple weeks, Jesus is going to put on the docket the three chief acts of Jewish piety. First of which, the antique word almsgiving, which is the fancy way of saying giving to the needy. Next week, we're going to address, or the week, couple weeks, we're going to address prayer, and then we're going to address fasting. And Jesus is going to help his listeners understand something. There is a godly way, and there is a wasted way to do these three godly things. And this list can get really as long as we want. There is a godly way and a wasted way to do almost any good thing. And Jesus is going to help these listeners to anyone, really, who would bend their knee and follow Jesus as Lord, and he wants to help them realize something, that those who are truly followers of Christ will live for and they will give for God's praise and not for the applause of people. And so Jesus begins with a warning, like our moms do. He says in verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you got nothing. You've got no reward with your Father in heaven. And Jesus, it's a simple warning, and it's going to apply to the specific action here of giving to the needy, 
which is a great thing. And you know what? South Shores gets very high marks in this department of giving to the needy. We've got our deacon fund. We've got Operation Christmas Child. We serve the Marines. We have innumerable, innumerable ways around here that we give to people who are in need. And we are not taking away from that at all. And Jesus isn't either. But what he wants to help us realize is this. If the true motive for you helping the Marines... If the true motive for us giving to the deacon fund is getting recognition by other people, we lose out on the eternal reward that God would have for us. Because what we know, if you've read the scriptures, is that God seeks to reward those eternally, the people who serve him with pure hearts. He seeks to reward those eternally who desire to praise God rather than seek the thumbs up from people. Scripture is all about this. Colossians 23, Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Romans 2. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. And in 1 Peter, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time casting all your cares upon him because he cares about you. The Lord will reward those who are his, and his rewards are way better. He wants to reward those who love and obey him with a pure heart. But Jesus is warning us to examine not just that we give, but to examine how we give. Not to do so in order to be seen, in order to get recognition in order to get your back scratched in return. Instead, you and I are called to live and to obey for God's praise. Or, as some people have said this, to play for the audience of one instead of the praise of people. And the praise of people is just not that good. I know you can watch the Golden Globes and the praise of people seems really cool and fanfare-ish, but it's just not that big a deal. Any blockbuster movie star from the 1970s today is not. (laughs) If anything, their value is a look back at how good they used to look, right? I can remember my parents talking about how beautiful Karen Carpenter was, and half of you have no idea who that is. Some of you remember Ronald Reagan before he became president. So winsome, incredible. Some of you in this room know the young actress in the 1970s named Carrie Fisher, and others of you have no idea who that is. Fame is fleeting. Uh, for those of you who remember what a high school yearbook is, you remember at the, uh, somewhere in there uh, your ASB or your yearbook people give awards to each other, uh, and they like to give awards to each other uh, like best looking, best hair, most funny, uh, most likely to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. Those, even if you win, have you won? 
those, those awards aren't worth the paper they're printed on. The things we thought were incredible and rewarding and a big deal, when you just let a little time pass, they're worth nothing. One that comes to mind for me, there was a particular high school assembly of mine where my basketball team was going to do a basketball drill in front of the school to wow them and impress them because the season was upon us. And this routine that we were to do involved some complex dribbling routines and various lines where at some point we would approach the basket and in beautiful unison we would, everyone would do layups and the school would be wowed and learning and School morale would increase. I don't know what was going on. But at some point in time, my mind clasped onto the idea that we would be doing this in front of the whole school and how much better for our team it would be if instead of laying up the basketball, the one solitary white guy on the team would dunk the basketball. Wouldn't that help our team? And so the routine ran, the line synchronized, and soon enough, I was approaching the basket and quickly my team's dream was realized as instead of a meager layup that the peasants at 5'7 that were on my team had to do, I launched into the air inches and feet and dunked the basketball. And the school shouted and screamed, and I got a stand, I mean, the, the team got a standing ovation. <laughs> but you know what? As soon as that last scream stopped echoing off the wall, my reward ended. And nobody's cared since that moment. And that is like our good works when done with the wrong motivation. The praise of people is fleeting, yet how much of our life is consumed with praising, getting the praise of people? So Jesus warned us to be careful not to do our good works in order to get praise. And after that warning, he moves on to cover a how-to of sorts in, this, in the next coming verses when it comes to doing a good work in a good way. And while, yes, Jesus is specifically talking about the kind of good works when giving to people in need, kind of the overall framework regarding attitude and motivation applies far beyond just that. It can apply to any good work that we take on for Jesus, hopefully. And in verse 2, he goes on to say, Whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. So in these few verses, Jesus really boils down what amounts to a good news, bad news situation, right? In verse 2, he lays out the bad news. He's going to point to what not to do in the situation. He illustrates the exact situation of when a good work doesn't work. He says, don't toot your own horn. Don't like your own Instagram picture. Jesus is going to say, look, you hypocrites, you religiously blind people, if you do a good work in order to get other people to stop and congratulate you, it's wasted. And this is tough for us because at times the line is fuzzy where our desire to do good and honor God stops and our desire to get people to like us and respect us begins. I mean, men, are you opening the door for her to show her respect or because you're hoping for a second date? Are you mowing your neighbor's lawn because you love them 
and you want to serve them like Jesus has served you or because you're hoping to get voted in as the vice president of the homeowners association? Are you going on that missions trip in order to proclaim the gospel to those who've never heard or so that people back at home can see your picture of you doing it? The bottom line for us here is that Jesus says, if you toot your own horn, if you blow a trumpet to alert people to your good works, whatever accolades you get, however many likes you get, that's your reward incomplete. Expect nothing more. You get a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, enjoy it. Now people can walk on it and litter on it. You made the cover of a magazine, the cover of a newspaper, now it's at the bottom of a birdcage. <laughs> Voted most likely to succeed or best hair, well now you don't have any. <laughs> Maybe you dunked a basketball in high school. Nobody cares. There's your reward. You have it in total. And it's kind of a letdown. But Jesus said in John 10, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. His sights are set a little bit higher than yours and mine. Because remember what Paul said in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. And now in verse 3 and 4, he's going to let us in on the good news instead of the bad news, the what to do and how to do the right way of doing good works, the God-honoring way of giving to the needy or really doing anything that blesses others for the sake of the Lord. Verse 3, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who has night vision goggles, will see and reward you. We have to see this. Giving to the needy, serving others in the name of Christ is not optional for Christ followers. Jesus sees it as something you will do. So he says, when you give to the poor, he's not talking about if it gets done. He's assuming if you follow him, it will get done. Instead, what he's speaking to is how it gets done. And when you do this, when you do these good works, Jesus is saying, you're supposed to trick yourself in a way, it seems to read. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's hyperbole. Jesus is being funny on purpose. He, what he's saying is, be low key. Don't toot your own horn. Be under the radar in the way that you do good works. Do it secretly. Try not to draw attention. If you threaten the church and say, I will give this money, but only if I get a bench with a plaque on it or else. And let's not be baby bathwater about this. We shouldn't avoid doing good works to avoid having bad motives. Our goal, though, is to give and to give in a godly way with godly secrecy. Because our good works, our devotion must first be to the Lord and then be for men. But we mess it up when we make it about other people. I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul talked about a particular group of Christians. They were from Macedonia, which sounds like a far away and magical place, but it's really just modern day Greece, Albania, Serbia area. 
And these Christians impressed Paul. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul wrote about them and the way that they gave. 2 Corinthians 8 says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped, instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. You see, our good works, our devotion must be first to God, prompted by God and then for men. It's not for a spotlight. Our good works are to be set aside for the glory of God. And just so you and I don't assume the wrong thing, we're not supposed to do good works to get God to love us. Instead, you and I are called to do good works because it's a response. It's a response to the fact that God has shown his mercy to us, to people of all nations, of all time. He's shown his mercy and we respond in good works. And we get to do what he's done to us to give to needy people. But we need to do so with a a pure heart. Let's remember this. There's only one God. He's holy and we are not. And he made you and I in his image and he made us to know him. But you and I have sinned. We each have cut ourselves off from God because of our sin. On the opposite side of that, Jesus lived a perfect life. He he lived without sin. And then he went to the cross. He kept the law perfectly. And he took on himself the punishment for our sins that we deserve. And then he rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice. And that God's wrath against you and me had been satisfied. And now, his call to each one of us is that we repent of our sin. That we trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. And and if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we get born into a new life, an eternal life filled with good works to honor God and bless others. And if you're in this room and you've never accepted that offer of Christ to be saved, I hope today would be that day. If you've bowed your need to Christ, if you have, if you've accepted the forgiveness that he's offered you, now your heart can be overwhelmed with gratitude that then seeks to respond by honoring Savior, the Savior with your good works that get done with a pure heart to the glory of God and to the blessing of others. So we got to be careful. Let's not toot our own horn. Let's make sure we keep the horn proclaimed at Jesus and the way that we love each other gets done with secrecy and with gentleness and love to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, you are such an example for us in how to give, in how to serve. And I pray that you would be brought glory this morning and I pray that you would teach us as a church how to give the way that you do and how to give and how to do good works in a way that honors you and that brings eternal reward rather than temporary reward. Would you change our church 
as a result of the power of your grace. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus.